0: it's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue and that's when i really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and
1: bonds investing is about innovation the belief is if there's a new piece of information that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever but that's not how people change their minds
2: Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world uncovering their secrets to success. Today, we revisit one of our most popular interviews to date. In June last year, Ed spoke to Beth Kindig, a technology analyst with over a decade of experience in private markets. Now, though, Beth is co founder of the IO Fund, which specializes in helping individuals gain a competitive advantage when investing in technology growth stocks. So, how does Beth do this? She's gained hands on experience over many years, either working for or analyzing tech companies, driving the micro trends causing wholesale disruption and creating tomorrow's world. Beth writes some incredible analysis of public companies and is a regular contributor to Forbes. And remember to receive a roundup of Opto's best content every day, sign up to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy.
1: Hey, Beth. Thanks for coming on the show. Good to have you here today.
0: Thank you for having me, Ed.
1: And that you're you're in San Francisco, right?
0: Right now I'm in Boulder. Uh I move, you know, I I move between the two cities, Boulder and San Francisco. So, uh more closely to San Francisco when tech conferences are in session and uh Boulder for recreation, so.
1: Yeah. Um I was just talking about uh, with someone else today that you released an article that's quite interesting about uh, IPO valuations. Um I don't know if we could start there as just a Kick off a bit of a chat about that, why, why you think they might have gone too far or not.
0: The research that I did was really interesting because we knew the path very well that Zoom Video and CrowdStrike took. We were very close to that; um, those events. We were covering them very, very closely. Uh, we held off on buying Zoom Video for about 10 to 11 months to allow it to absorb uh, the difference in valuation from the private, last private round to the initial price to the opening price. And give you an example, Zoom video went from its last private round of $1 billion in 2017 to a initial price, this is for institutions, at $10 billion. And then the public, um, you know, it opened up at $20 billion. So, But when you average that out over the months it took to go public, we found a premium of about $600 million to $700 million. And interesting enough, that's the exact same range of CrowdStrike charged uh, the premium it charged basically when it went public. Uh, And when I say charged, I mean for people like us, not the initial round, which is reserved for institutions and where the money is raised. Uh, Basically, because we cover this space so closely, tech growth, I then re-ran some numbers from the 2020 class of IPOs. These are companies like Snowflake, DoorDash, Uh, Airbnb and uh, Roblox. And what I found was absolutely shocking. Uh, What they've done is charged a premium of between seven to $10 billion per month between their last private valuation. What you have to understand is that when they're raising rounds, when they're raising funding rounds, both sides have teams of experts that are valuing these companies correctly. Uh, no, no side here is going to give up anything they don't have to in order to raise the money. So the, you know, the startup, which is what they are at the time, is not going to cut more favorable, a more favorable deal uh, than what they have to in order to raise that money. So when we look at private valuations, the reason why they're so important to pay attention to is because they start to show us the true valuation of a company. Uh, and again, through teams and teams of experts that are trying to get a fair deal. And then when you look at you know the, the initial offering uh, when the company goes to raise its round in the public markets, they also have teams and teams of experts to make sure that this valuation is fair. Um, so now when you when you move forward and you start to trade the stock, those valuations are determined by opinions and speculation. So that's the least um, accurate opinion is what a company opens for uh, because they're just hoping to get this sky high-in-the-sky price, basically. So I went through and looked, and it was shocking to me. Um, I am very concerned about whether or not these valuations can be absorbed by the markets. Um, it took 10, 10 to 12 months for Zoom video to consistently trade above its opening price. And now, when I say consistently, it doesn't mean you won't see some spikes up. Uh, it's that it will not consistently hold that price and, and form a bottom and never return. Basically, so if you get into the stock, if you bought Zoom in July, you were holding uh, losses through February. Uh, that's tough for any individual investor, any retailer, and not only because losses are really, um, you know, obviously they're hurting your account, but because you could have put that money in some somewhere else too. Uh, so it's a double loss, the way we look at it. Anytime we're losing money on, an, on, a, on a stock, we ask ourselves, could we have put it in a better investment and made money? Anyways, fast forward, if it, it took Zoom nearly a year and CrowdStrike as well, nearly a year to absorb the premium they charged uh, at the opening price, what is it we're facing with these companies that went from... Snowflake went from a $12 billion valuation in less than a year was at a $68 billion valuation. Yeah. That's not even the most extreme. The most extreme is probably Airbnb. It was an $18 billion valuation. Six months later, it was a $90 billion valuation. I'm just telling you right now, it's not possible. It's just not possible to gain that much in, uh, in value that quickly with declining revenue.
1: And um a few of these companies have gone through quite a substantial and it well at least I know snowflake has during the sort of exodus from growth stocks that we've seen recently so you're saying that their valuations are still highly elevated even with that decline or
0: so snowflake did dip below its opening price briefly basically very briefly it's a, it's hovering around there right now, which is in the mid two hundreds uh, The thing is that you'll see these Uh, ups and downs uh, during more favorable conditions. But when you get a long stretch of unfavorable uh, market conditions, they're the first to go. And so we actually continue to invest in Snowflake today. Um, But due to the research, we're going to hold, we're actually going to put a stop on it, which we don't tend to do, but we're not going to hold that one if, uh, if we see uh, unfavorable market conditions.
1: And, um, just going back a bit to, because um, obviously your, your experience and background is you've been heavily in the technology sector for a long time, which gives you good insight into that area. What innovative trends are you seeing now that are sort of going to define the next five to 10 years? You know, it'd be interesting to, to talk about that.
0: I think the one to zero in on is artificial intelligence and. I think what you had said about, so one thing I do want to point out, and I'm not the only one out there, uh, there are a handful of others, but I do think it requires someone who's worked in the tech industry. I see a lot of financial backgrounds um, attempt to discuss tech stocks, and there's just a lot of errors and there's no edge because if you take the, uh, the surplus of financial backgrounds attempting to describe the difference between, you know, at this point, there's thousands of AI companies, at least in the private markets without any experience, it's going to be tough. And this is where you want to get it right. You want to get AI right because right now it's become a buzzword and we've done some numbers and they're coming in around 40 to 60% of companies that claim AI do not have AI features. That's really typical for startups and even public companies to attach to a hype. And so anyways, I'm going to say AI, but I'm going to say make sure that your sources are super quality. Um, You'll have your obvious ones, right? Like people will say to me, isn't Waymo and Google going to kill AI? They're the AI leader. They have the R&D and the engineering departments. Um, And I will actually counter that. And I will say they will have to go through some serious M&A because the optimal innovation is going to come from the private markets. Uh, So they will acquire basically the innovation coming from the private markets. And, you know, we like pure place. So we are typically the majority of the positions we have are pure place. It just makes it easier to know what to count on. Um, but I would say too that above and beyond, we, we were, um, writing about Nvidia, uh, in 2018 during the crypto bust, uh, when everyone was saying Nvidia was over with, um, I was saying at that time, whoa, 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 this is a AI leader and they will be the first to turn uh, because they're at the, you know, they do the AI accelerator chips and they were the first. What you're seeing with NVIDIA today, you will see in other companies soon, which is a lot of strong relative strength.
1: In other AI companies or, or semiconductors or?
0: I mean, so we are big proponents of semis, and that goes back to requiring people who work in tech to be a good source of information, because uh, financial analysts and momentum traders, they don't touch the semis. Um, but that's, in my opinion, a blind spot, because semis are moving from cyclical to secular. That piece is extremely important for people to understand. Can you,
1: can you touch on that? Like, just for people who don't understand that, yeah.
0: Yeah, so the supply shortage, quote unquote, is a great example. That is not a supply shortage as much as it's a surge in demand, because just like every industry at one point became a data industry and became a cloud industry, where you saw whatever, maybe it was insurance, maybe it was healthcare, they started to move to the cloud. Every industry is going to require um, more chips and a higher content on chips. So... Basically, uh, a higher cost of content. So, basically, not only will more chips be in demand, and we saw that with vehicles right now, but they will have to pay more for chips. And that growth period is not stopping into the foreseeable future. I would not be surprised if you asked me to come talk to you in 2030, if Summies continued a hot streak that long. That would not be surprising to me.
1: And the primary driver for that you think is is related to AI and the how AI is going to become more popular and they all need advanced semiconductors uh, to do everything basically.
0: Yes. Um, More computing power closer to the edge. Um, So you have the AI ML, uh, you have 5G Uh, edge computing is within itself uh, going to enable many new use cases. So one is like surgical um, we talk about surgical robots and then you're like see this big Da Vinci robot come out, but I'm more talking like a surgeon will have more data immediately available to determine how to uh, approach a critical moment in surgery. So a little bit more um, like man in the machine, if you will, or a human man or woman in the machine. Uh, So it's less like robots are totally taking over and it's more, how can we augment every single industry with more intelligence, quicker, faster to have better outcomes and a lot of this is already happening in manufacturing and agriculture. People don't, under, don't know this. And in fact, I've been watching the company because I wonder if they'll become a tech company. But like John Deere is becoming a big leader in robotics. And when I say robotics, I mean like everything is timed to where they can just, people can grow more crops. Um, and we need more food and there are fewer farmers. Um, so those are the kinds of industries where semiconductors are uh, disrupting these industries, and um, it's it very similar to the migration to the cloud or when data basically took over the the world, big data and, and software.
1: And if you're able to narrow it down to a few core areas that you think AI is going to disrupt the most and have the largest use case or value, what would you sort of focus on if you had to?
0: Like, let's say this year, like where to look, um, actually natural language processing and AI voice assistants are starting to make their way uh, not only into the mainstream, but into a lot of different um, industries. Uh, Robotics process automation, it just makes, so we may have these ethical debates uh, around are we really replacing humans, Uh, which most AI companies will tell you we are only making their lives better because we're getting rid of mundane jobs that nobody wants to do. So I just want to like throw that out there. But when you look at from a budget perspective, there is there is no reason every company won't eventually go into automation because the numbers make a lot of sense and the numbers only get better and better as time goes on with each investment. So let's say you throw a million dollars into automation or 10 or a hundred or a billion, you're going to make back, you know, like seven to 20 X on that investment because you have automation that can run over the weekends on holidays, never takes bathroom breaks, you know, rarely makes mistakes. Um, and so it just starts to look like, uh, you know, when you figure the fortune 100, the fortune one, you know, the global 5,000, um, you are looking hard and long at automation right now. Um, And then when you look at, so that's kind of the background scene that um, unless you're one of those companies, you may overlook this opportunity because you're not sitting in these budget meetings. But then like if you're a consumer, uh, you know, the industries such as like insurance and lending, we're seeing some movement there. But I would also say um, just easier to get around in your life, like travel. Um, In general, the goal is to cut, you know, cut, cut costs and increase productivity. Um, so that's where AI and ML come in big. Um, e-commerce has a lot to gain. Um, one thing that I like to point out is that companies like Facebook, um, I'm actually a privacy advocate. I have been for almost seven years where I used to speak at, um, International Association of Privacy Professionals, I used to contribute for them articles around privacy because I was really concerned with how citizens were being tracked without their consent. And if you're from the mobile era, you know exactly like what I'm talking about. And if you're not from the mobile uh, industry, you may think, oh, this is just uh, headlines, but it's not. They actually track you very often without your consent. With, With AI, you don't actually have to do that because like Pinterest is a great example or Netflix, their recommendation engines are run on AI so by taking a few actions, like movies you're watching, their AI can figure out what you might want to watch next. That's a better alternative than following you around on the internet yeah. to find out who you are. So that's, those are some other examples as to how like an yeah. ad tech and e-commerce, um, you know, rather than like putting cookies and pixels everywhere and tracking you without your consent, they can just figure it out by your activity within their own website. And Pinterest is a good example of that. They have a lot of AI behind their uh, recommendations.
1: And from an investing standpoint, if you're saying a lot of these companies um, are going to be private companies, so, you know, and maybe SPACs have opened up a little bit of a, uh, you know, getting an early, slightly earlier on some of these private companies, it would have been um, going to private equity beforehand. Um, how, how can people take advantage of this trend in AI from an investing point of view? If they're all private, or or they're just going to be gobbled up by large public companies.
0: That's a good question. I I still think there would be a lot of opportunities. I you know, like I said, we covered Nvidia when it was getting beat up by the market because the market is I will throw this out there. The market is very inefficient with tech because tech is, does not cooperate with forward earnings revisions and various ways. It definitely doesn't cooperate just kind of cash flow analysis. It doesn't cooperate with um, automated ways of trying to determine what company is better than others on a comparable basis. Uh, The reason why is because uh, it's all about product. And so you've got to understand product and you've got to be able to see where the product is headed, you know, on a roadmap, uh, the product roadmap before the market sees it. And the market's not going to see it until speaking of natural language processing, they can run that on earnings calls or Twitter sentiment or, Uh, those types of um, data inputs. Uh, So what I'm trying to say is that the market would not have been able to price NVIDIA correctly when there was so much negative sentiment around the crypto issues in 2018. Um, Meanwhile, if you looked at product and you understood product, you would know that NVIDIA was the best choice for an AI accelerator chip because of its parallel computing. So... You've got to go product and we champion product uh, not only because we've formed our company around it by putting a tech industry analyst in the middle, um, but because it gives you like it gives you the best edge and venture capitalists are the best people to look at for this. So they are given opportunities that have little to no financial success. Um, you know, they have some growth usually, but they're not able to look at financials and run a discounted cash flow analysis is there's no cash. Um, and they're not able to model. I mean, they can model definitely a little bit with key metrics and things like that, but it depends on the product. It depends on the product continuing to gain traction. And so if you take from their playbook, which we would say they are the best tech investors, way over listening to someone like Warren Buffett, serious winners on in tech investing in the private markets. I mean, people spotted opportunities very early. Um, it's all product, really, because it has to be at that point. And so we continue that same theory into, or that, I should say that same investing style into the public markets. Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the um, AI companies, they use a lot of AI. It's um, been in the public markets, uh, in the news quite a lot, and people have been focusing quite a lot. is Palantir. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on, are on them and their growth prospects.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Going back to the beginning of the interview, you had asked about the IPO valuations. What was interesting about Palantir is that they went public at the same price as their last private round. And they've done very well. They've doubled in the market and it looks like they've formed a bottom uh, that was well above their opening price. And I think they did it because um, their last private round was equal to where they opened. Um, So they left... Uh, the meat on the bone or the games, if you will, for us general public population. Um, and that was a smart move it, because the problem is that sentiment can push your company down to the point where people don't want to touch it. It's left for dead. Spotify actually had that issue. But as far as like a company goes, uh, I have done some deep dive research on Palantir. I wrote about it for Forbes. Uh, it's available for free on Forbes. Um, in the end, I passed because... I have found if you take companies like Lockheed Martin or whatnot, I have found that when you have a lot of government customers and a lot of government uh, budget coming into your company, moving into the commercial space is really tough. And it doesn't mean they can't pull it off, but that particular risk was too great uh, for us to uh, invest. And I outlined this very clearly in the Forbes article that I published at the time it went public. It's now materializing. That risk is now materializing. And it, again, it goes back to me having seen this before, where companies that take uh, government contracts tend to not do as well on the commercial markets. And what why is that? Yeah, it's almost like their entire team was built around this guaranteed revenue. And it's better to build a team that's a little bit more like eat what you kill or Yeah, yeah eat got- what you kill. But you know, yeah. to have to have them compete where You've got to be the best product on the market in order to get the revenue from day one is a better environment for the competitive nature of tech. than you are provided, you know, your, the revenue is coming, your your salaries are guaranteed, and we don't have to do anything but hang out and research and build a really cool product that we're not sure if there's serious product market fit or not. Yeah, great. Yeah. So, so that piece, which is that they don't have to work for not survival, but a little bit of survival of the fittest issue um, can really affect a tech company because our industry is above and beyond the most competitive industry you will see around the globe. I mean, it is all about the competition when you're going to pick a good company you know, uh, like it's not just, is it data dog, right? It's like, well, what about elastic? What about Splunk? What about, you know, and there's a lot of, um, and Dynatrace, there's a lot of competition and then people will move in and creep on the territory and, uh, you've got to keep on uh, keep on top of that. So anyways, it's all about competition and competition makes a company sharper and Talenter had, no reason to create product market fit with those government contracts and that's the big flag i saw
1: yeah is there another ai company that's of particular interest to you you can discuss like what's what's interesting about their you know their business model etc
0: yeah i mean i'd like to see where Snowflake starts to merge with more machine learning uh databricks right now is a stronger competitor on machine learning Uh, they have some big backers they are going public soon Uh, They need to make that transition. I think they will make that transition and it'll be one to watch. The problem though is when will that company absorb the premium it charged in 2020? So that's an issue. Their bigger competitors are BigQuery from Google and SQL databases. And basically they are handling all of your data. They're extracting transform load and uh, therefore the business analytics team at at a company they are able, and data scientists as well, they are able to uh, work with data no matter where it comes from. And you know you can work across multiple clouds, multiple sources of data. Um, and eventually that's where the hub of machine learning will occur. Databricks has a pretty strong partnership with Apache Spark. And that particular piece um, has helped make Databricks stronger on machine learning. They are again, Snowflake can absolutely make that shift. They're mainly focusing on taking out the SQL legacy companies right now, which they're doing a good job of, uh, mainly because a lot of those legacy companies create vendor lock-in. You'll have an Amazon company, you'll have a Google company, and a Microsoft company, and these companies want you to stay with their cloud infrastructure. So when you bring in an agnostic player uh, that can work with any kind of any kinds of data, any kind, any source, um, they can start to edge out big tech because uh, ultimately that high switching costs of being stuck with uh, Amazon, for instance, is not worth it in the long term, especially because Snowflake is a more superior product. Um, so anyways, that'll become the hub of machine learning where the data, the data warehouses and the data lakes and um, Databricks is ahead right now because of its Partnership with Apache Spark. But like I said, once Snowflake executes well on taking out the SQL legacy players, they can move into competing more directly with Databricks, probably.
1: Great. And do you believe um, Snowflake is a better option than Fastly? Are they in a similar uh, space? I know you've talked about this, so <laughs> it, is, it was just an interesting one.
0: Yeah. It's funny because like last year um, everyone was really getting bowled up on Fastly and they were saying it's because it's an edge computing leader. And like, this is where the difference comes a lot when you've had a lot of exposure to tech. I know people who are building edge computing servers. I've talked to them on and off throughout the years. Like it's the number one startup in uh, edge computing. They win awards. I've talked with them a couple times. And uh, so that Exposure is really helpful. Is he a celebrity? Is he a CEO of a public company? No, but he's actually on the ground, really building this technology and understands it very well. And, anyways, what I'm trying to say is, like, I knew edge computing was not in the books right here, right now. Uh, It would require pretty much requires five G, and the telecoms are going to control a lot of edge computing because. They control five G. They're not going to go build uh, all this new network infrastructure and not keep as keep it as close to their chest as possible, Um, especially as they got wiped out uh, here and there through various ways with cloud. Right, like we are on Zoom video right now. We're not using a Verizon service. Um, So, anyways, back to Fastly. I basically call it like I see it. And when Twitter was getting all bowled up on fastly over edge computing, I was like, there's no way that this is edge computing revenue. Um, I went and looked at the financials. It wasn't edge computing revenue. It was a beta product that had not really even been launched. And it was all a pull forward from the streaming because they're a CDN. Therefore, the more that people are streaming, the more that a CDN's revenue will go up. But it, requi- it would have required massive amounts of streaming, which... COVID provided for. I mean, that's what COVID did, right? We're all indoors streaming a ton of social media or content, uh, randomly suddenly as a one-time event. So that of course is going to make a CDN, uh, explode in revenue temporarily. Uh, just like Netflix had a pull forward fastly had a pull forward. And I was out there not because I had anything to gain. I did not short the company. I did not have any money to make out of this opinion, but I thought that I would help people out a little bit and let them know that you guys, this is pretty normal stuff for CDN, Akamai, Limelight, uh, Cloudflare should all see the same activity. So be careful, you know, be careful of listening to the hype of this edge computing story. Um, could fastly see edge computing tailwinds in the future. Yes, but I'm not sure they can uh, grow a number of customers off that because the new use cases will be provided through a combination of the cloud computing companies and the 5G telecom companies. Um, Those two will work very closely together to deliver lower latency higher workloads, higher workloads at lower latency. So they are moving forward right now. Um, So if you're talking about Fastly or any other edge computing company and you don't have Azure in your conversation, AWS and Verizon and AT&T, you're missing 95% of the discussion. And there can be little echo chambers where people are not aware of the fact that the chances that Verizon and AT&T don't own 95% of the 5G edge computing market uh, with CDN servers, pretty low.
2: We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions, along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show.
1: Can we just go back quickly to your, just a bit about your background? doesn't need a lot, but a quick overview because, you know, you've had an interesting career. I think it'd be interesting for people to know.
0: Yeah. For sure. I arrived in the Silicon Valley area around 2010. I had come through school, uh, provided for myself and was selling a lot of real estate investments. So I came out, I mean, I probably grew $50,000 to a million dollars in my early 20s uh, through real estate investments. Um, So I was always really keen and it was completely on my own, not money, not family money. I like to say that because it's not as impressive if someone was there doing it for you. Um, and so, yeah, I was working a lot. I was, I was, I've always worked a lot, uh, between school and, and my career and it wasn't what I was going to do for the rest of my life, real estate, but I found a loophole to pay for school, come out with some investments. I then moved to Silicon Valley and San Francisco. And I was an, I was a writer that could look at tech companies and communicate very clearly what the differences were. Uh, this is during a burgeoning startup scene. There were, I mean. Like there were startup events all night, every night, five to 10 a day. Um, You were, everyone, everyone was the founder of a startup and the area, the region needed people who could really break down what's the difference between the 20 startups that presented at the launch event today. So I um, was picked up by a VC for a contract uh, with some multinational media companies. And then I went out on my own and started working directly with startups on how to write about their products. And I worked with over 300 startups, put out like seven, 800 articles a year. So just to put that into perspective, that's basically like a tech crunch. um, It's like a tech, that's more than a tech crunch journalist. And um, then I went into having a real job, uh, a jobby job. And I was a developer evangelist. So I was sitting in between engineers and sales departments and I was doing what I've, was doing since day 1 which is how do you describe the value of a product to early adopters and investors um the company i worked for was a holding company so they had nine startups at their company so my experience is broad you could easily find a software engineer who would know more you know about the difference uh between um you know snowflake and databricks if i'm going to sit down and like really decide which product to go with. There's going to be data scientists out there who could probably write hundred pages on each company. But the difference about me is, you know, I can build a 30 position portfolio across 10 different technologies because I worked with the 300 plus startups early on. And then I was, I was a champion of nine emerging tech products, so that means that I was at security conferences. I presented at Black Hat. I was at ad tech conferences. I presented at Advertising Week. I was working with genomic sequencing data, um, you know, a company that handles that. Um, I was working with uh, streaming media and OTT. And so I was working across lots of different products and not just working on them, but communicating very clearly why you should go with this product over our competitors So it basically just chiseled me into somebody who can communicate very clearly the difference between tech products. That's really what my experience is.
1: And right now you're at, is it IO Fund? Yes. Yeah. and Can you quickly go go over what IO Fund's focus is and what you're doing there?
0: Yeah, when we started out, um, you know, I basically thought like, what if I did what I do for the private markets, which is tell, you know, describe very clearly the differences between tech and describe why a certain company will be a winner um, before the market has priced it in. What, you know, what if I could do that uh, for the public market? So I started to do that and people really liked what I was writing. And then some of the stocks I called were doing very, very well. Um, So then about a year later in July of 2019, um, I teamed up with a portfolio manager, somebody who really knows how to build portfolios, how to, when to enter, when to exit. And we began to cover tech stocks together. Um, The reason why he's critical is because I could sit here and tell you the difference or, you know, write the difference about Snowflake and Databricks all day long. But what if the market's going to go through a drastic sell-off and these companies are going to lose 60 to 70% of their stock price? It happens. And that's what you need a portfolio manager for is because he is determining all day, every day, is this the right time to enter? And uh, so his specialty is analyzing charts. He's a a technical analyst. And we believe very strongly in technical analysis for tech companies because they are so sentiment driven, because they can go up 400% in a year and plummet 70%. That's telling you that sentiment this is the same company, this exact same company that went up 400% is the exact same company that fell 70. So this is telling you that sentiment drives technology uh, on the public markets. Um, and so you, the reason why technical analysis is important is it's kind of like taking vitals on sentiment. Um, so anyways, we fast forward in May of 2020, we combined our money into what we call a fund and we transparently- text, message, or email our subscribers every time we enter Exodus stock. Um, we think that's important because as many people know, I was writing about Roku at $30. Nobody was writing about Roku when I was doing it, but are we buying today? I mean, it's great if somebody bought Netflix in, two, you know, in 2010, are you buying Netflix today? Um, You know, it's great if you bought Apple way back when and you want to tell us how great your gains are, but are you buying Apple today? Because that's what readers and subscribers need to know. Um, So we basically transparently let people know, are we actively entering uh, quality, these quality companies we've identified or is it not the time for, you know, that, um, that category within tech? So as people know, telehealth has been taking a big pause You know, we actually began to trim back in February again because Knox was watching the sentiment. It's a great example. Does that mean telehealth is over? No, Uh, it just means that the sentiment was changing and it was not the right time to park a lot of money into it. Um, And in fact, we were taking gains around that time. So that's why uh, the IO fund is set up to where you are getting quality in-depth research from somebody with experience in the industry, but you're also getting full transparency on what we're buying or are selling today. Uh, yeah. And our gains have been very good. Um, we are way ahead of arc this year because we have large positions in Bitcoin and uh, blockchain basically. Um, and that was sentiment that was, came from the portfolio manager too. He could tell it was breaking out. So we doubled down sometimes on certain trends, cut back on others. Um, and that piece I think is really, really important for uh individual retail investors to see
1: and one of the other sort of themes that you focus on uh electric vehicles can you take us through what your thoughts are on them at the moment obviously gone through a bit of a downturn in that growth sort of crash that that happened last month or so uh but longer term the trend you think it's still going to be positive and is there going to be a lot of adoption over like next sort of five years
0: Yes, that's a great question. So we, when we started to cover EVs, there are certain uh, categories that you just have to buckle up a little bit more for. You just got to buckle in your seatbelt and get ready for the ride. And EVs are one of those categories. So we went into it knowing this was going to be a wild ride. And you should know that about EVs. Anytime there's an emerging tech that's this new, it's going to be wild. You know, ads... Um, something like that, it's not going to be quite as wild because ads are, have a proven business model. You can easily model uh, cash flow, things like that. So your institutions are going to feel a little bit more comfortable with it. But this is where the edge comes from, right? It's like having that conviction regardless of what the market's doing. And the thing about EVs that we've identified uh, about six months ago is that I did, I was very uh, open and writing a lot for the premium site on the fact that we did not think Tesla was going to lead China. And it's really just comes from the fact that Apple did not lead China on mobile. They are, you know, they're nationalists and they are very controlling around what tech gets in and out of that country. And they're going to make sure their domestic brands are the top brands combine that obviously with China's population, which is always helpful. there's a lot more people there but China does not have any oil. So here you will find easily if you talk to someone in Chicago, they will uh, not bat an eye between choosing um, you know a combustion engine over an electric because there's plenty of oil to go around. Um, and uh, so the government also isn't going to tell you what vehicle to buy. Um, where in China, they actually do tell you what vehicle to buy. They give you subsidies, they incentivize that purchase, um, and they drive the cost down. So these companies are getting a ton of incentives, um, that make it more appealing than a Tesla. And because it goes back to the chips that we talked about, um, this is probably controversial if you're a big Elon Musk fan, but I think the brains of the, of the car are coming from the chips. So they're, you know, the is important too, but you could take an Nvidia. Uh, you could, you know, partnering with Nvidia can make a company like Xpeng or Neo superior, equal to equal or superior to Tesla, who's trying to create their own chips. Um, so the, you know, the, the excellence around, uh, you know, the R and D starts to get chipped away, with, or you know, starts to whittle away when you've got these strong semis that you can utilize. Uh, for the brains of the vehicle, and XPeng did just that. They partnered with NVIDIA for some of their autonomous features, and they became one of the first to come out with autonomous features. They completely leapfrogged Tesla because Tesla was attempting to make their own chip, which my personal opinion is it might be the wrong move. Yeah, How okay. can you? I, I would not want to go up against NVIDIA yeah. on chips, <laughs> and then and then fight the other EVs. You got two battles yeah. going on. Is that is that good to fight two battles?
1: So semiconductors. Um, also riding this trend or at least the most advanced and innovative are riding the trend of EVs as well as artificial intelligence. So yes. Potentially a lot of you know a lot of wind behind their backs.
0: And then one thing that the VC world always said like through the last 10, 10 years or whatever when I was at these startup events is they said is it an aspirin or a vitamin? That was constantly said at these startup events because what they're trying to say is, is it a necessity? Are you are you are you helping a pain? like a headache, or are you a supplement that you know is a convenience. That's what they meant between an aspirin and a vitamin. In China, I will say that EVs are an aspirin because it's a necessity. This country has no oil where here they're a vitamin and that can affect things quite a bit.
1: So yeah. What you're saying is the best opportunity is with the Chinese EV manufacturers today.
0: Yeah, and it may be controversial to say that because a lot of people really like Tesla. I feel even more confident saying it now than when I first formed the thesis six months ago because we just saw Tesla stumble on their China numbers. Those are going to be watched really closely because, uh, again, it's not only the fact they have, you know, three, four X more people. It's because um, the government will make darn sure that they're driving EVs. Yeah, so there's that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can see that completely. Um, what's your thoughts on the Chinese investing in the Chinese market? Obviously, there's been quite a few, like, you know, people people give it um, uh, like a China discount on on some stocks because of the risk involved. Is that, how do you approach that sort of thing?
0: Sure. So if I was, um, what I would say is like, you know, I really like the EVs for China because of what I described. Uh, Sometimes there's certain countries that have, Uh, Advantages over others in terms of growing the market. Uh, But like, let's, you know, versus social media, let's say, or um, uh, whatever else, cloud, those kinds of things. Like, some people were always asking me about uh, a company called API or the stock tickers API versus Twilio. I mean, for me, you know, I like to stick to the United States if I can, if I don't see a major reason to be in China. If China is not providing me something, I can't get in my stock choices here. So they're rock bottom. Uh, pricing and valuations. To be totally transparent, I would be less keen on China if it wasn't for the technical analyst on my team, Knox, because he'll make sure my readers are protected and he'll make sure they double down when it's about to explode. He likes China right now. He likes the charts a lot. Uh, So he's been uh, staying firm on some of those that got really beat up, uh, which is encouraging to see. And what I would say, though, is let's say you're a school teacher or let's say you've got a a nine to five job and you're not a very active investor. I think there's like my top 10 uh, long term buy and hold don't touch over the next 10 years does not include China, if that makes sense. So I think it depends on your style. If you're more active, if you can watch the market a little more closely, China probably has some nice upside. But if that's not your style, I would say the most important thing is that you stick to your style. If you've got kids and a job and, you know, you just want to check your stocks on your phone once a week, there are more safer choices for sure. And and, and similar upside, really. I mean, we might get a big, big, there's a chance that China really pops right now, uh, but it's probably not going to sustain any better than some of the United States choices over the next three to five years. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Um, do you think there's an opportunity for Tesla? I know Arcs um, touched on it in their Big Ideas report that they might diversify into like autonomous taxis and things like this that could be yeah, additional revenue streams for them. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. But- that's a really good question because I actually covered uh, an article where I said why robo-taxis are impossible in 2020 because yeah. uh, that was the promise. I didn't catch a robo-taxi last year, did you? No. <laughs> no, they were promising robo-taxis by 2020. And I said it was impossible. And a similar thing that I said about edge computing is because we need 5G. Like it's really tough to get a car to stop in the milliseconds that a pedestrian walks out in front of it without 5G edge computing connection to lower that latency. Um, Those like nanoseconds are um, critical. And right now the infrastructure doesn't totally support that. You know, you don't want to run all that computing on the car because it'll run out the battery. Um, So the, you know, the best thing is to offload the computing into the edge network and then the car can stop very quickly. Um, So that goes back to some of the hype that I had seen even before Fastly. I had seen it with Tesla and I tried to call it out uh, because you got to look at the broader picture here, which is like, can you even realistically get a car to stop that quickly without a five G network? Um, but the other thing I will say, and uh, this is something I think the public markets get wrong too, is that you will have these savants who are incredible minds, and they are rarely in the in the news, and rarely are they a celebrity. Um, these are people who have been working on autonomous vehicles alongside the military for 20 years. These are people who are already deploying uh, autonomous uh, technology in semis. And the semi is able to do a a, a route, the same route every day in the same lane, but it's able to do a route. It's like these less flashy ways that this technology comes to the market that we are most interested in at the IO fund. If, 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 If someone or anything is in the headlines a lot, My first thought is the market knows about it. It's probably priced in if it's even true. Um, So autonomy can happen. Uh, It'll be, as Tim Cook says, the hardest thing technologists have ever uh, developed is will be autonomous driving. Um, So it's not easy and I don't expect it anytime soon, but you will see um, maybe level three, level four autonomy uh, with the assistance of semiconductors. It'll be the semiconductors that drive that forward. And then those edge computing networks. Um, and like I said, these um, unsung heroes or unsung experts that are in quietly working away. Um, so Tesla, as the first company to come out with autonomous driving, I doubt it.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> if you're a Elon fan. Uh.
1: That's a good overview, I think. It's, um. It's also very interesting to know. I hadn't appreciated that to do some of these calculations um, on, on, in the car would use too much batteries. They need to uh, get use five G to you know to, to ping an API and just gives them the result, or whatever.
0: That goes back to China actually, which is that China, uh, because of its dense metro population, is Asia Pacific is moving quicker on five G yeah. than us.
1: So, okay. so even more advanced than that. Yeah, and. Um, actually had a question, do you think lithium, because of the batteries, if they're essential, you know, a lot, there's been a lot of lithium uh, companies that people have been, you know, had, had massive spikes last year, and equally they came off quite a bit. Um, are they going to, are some of those companies really going to do well with this, you know, any ones that have got good exposure to China, for example?
0: Yeah, lithium and, um, yeah, so the thing about lithium batteries is that for me, it's too complicated of a market to find the winner. So I stay away, mm-hmm. meaning uh, too 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 many competitors. Uh, so I like to see the clear leader. Um, I you know I don't mind three choices, but I don't like any more than that. Um, so even with uh, you know laser, um, there are a lot of laser companies too. Uh, so. That piece, we attempted to get in, uh, but we decided to get back out because there were just too many
1: competitors. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, and then usually it's better to work with the vendors and the suppliers. It's it's okay, like I said, I really like the semi level uh, in the stack, but when you're getting into all those many different components, uh, it's better to me to just work with or to look at like xpeng neo and the auto out of china rather than yeah, all of the yeah.
1: vendors Interesting. um if i could i'd like to just ask a few quick questions about your your general strategy um at io fund and can you just give a, a, a yeah, an overview of, of your overarching strategy and explain micro trends it seems to be you know involved in that
0: Yeah. Our overall strategy is uh, to take an expert who has a lot of experience looking at companies and to write long form analysis so that people truly understand what is the difference between this company and that company. Um, We are very good at shutting down the noise. Uh, We do not care much for um, too many people on social media, liking the same company because usually something is wrong at that point. Meaning we like long uh, analysis and research that has a very long shelf life. That is key versus you know, uh, something that's getting pumped very quickly in, in a month. Good quality tech companies should remain good quality tech companies for 10 to 20 years. And that blows most people's minds because they're looking for a three month return. Your strongest returns will be if you can remain in a tech company for a very long period of time, more than your typical industry. So we are always looking for buy and hold. Uh, with that said, we add momentum uh, so that we can make strong gains off like a six month period. So let's say that we start to see uh, something breaking out, uh, a category, an ETF breaking out, we will go and find the strongest company within that category and we will we will we will invest until it peaks and then we will trim quite a bit and let it fall. Um, so we are always playing both hands. I'm stronger on the long-term buy and hold. Most of what I write, even in 2018, for instance, what we're going on three years is 100% accurate today um, in the earnings calls in the product roadmap. Knox is very good at getting out and saying the trend isn't ready yet, or we're going to get trim here. Um, we think a blend of both is important. Um, We are also diversified within tech. So that's why uh, we were able to beat ARK uh, handily this year is because of our exposure to blockchain. As a tech industry analyst, I see blockchain, Bitcoin, those kinds of things, Ethereum, differently than uh, people who are not from the tech industry. And I was writing about that uh, two years ago on my free newsletter. I point blank said, during times of economic uncertainty, Bitcoin will be used as a safe haven. And it don't you know, we don't have to argue about that? Venezuela used it and Japan used it when interest rates were negative. Uh those populations piled into Bitcoin. Uh Venezuela saw insane amounts of inflation. We don't have to argue and debate during economic uncertainty is Bitcoin leveraged because we have lots of use cases where it is. Um that's where like you know, but ultimately we were into blockchain because of the Hash rate. Uh, The security behind blockchain is a technological wonder, and most people are not talking about the security of it. It is more secure than the ten thousand banks combined in the world. Um, So that's the piece that uh, a lot of people aren't uh, taking into consideration, and uh, and you know, defi and uh, defi in general. And we are early enough to where each trend is in its own cycle. So blockchain happened to have come through for us, but honestly, semis did too this year. Semis have held well. Uh, when you look at our portfolio versus ARC, that's where I think we've done, We I hope to continue to do better, which are, you know, outperform them is that we are, um, I, you know, it's hard to say we're better because they're so good, but I think there's moments where we're better because I am so zeroed in on what trend is taking off right now. And what trend needs more time? Um, and then Knox hedges. If he thinks the market's going down, there's tools that individual investors have that ETFs don't have. We can short uh, ETFs and we can short you know, the broader market. So we do that. So anyways, our strategy is, I'd say half our portfolio is long-term buy and hold. You don't have to touch it for five to 10 years. The other half is a more active stance. Yep. Uh, we take all the tools individual investors can ha- use to, to our advantage. And probably the one thing that might separate us from ARC, not only since we've launched the fund, but moving forward, is that I am very sensitive and keen on timing the trends.
1: Yeah, awesome. And so my next question was um, when you found one of these trends, these industries, um, what are the main criteria? Because obviously you must have a lot that you sort of use to assess, and determine. What you believe to be the winners or or the best in that field? How do you do that?
0: Yeah, so I guess um, I'll use Zoom Video as an example. Uh, where here's a company that is driving productivity and reducing costs, and a lot of people think it's a COVID play, right? But it's been it, so the day that the day that Zoom Video went public. It was the strongest tech company we've ever seen on the public markets and its financials in 2019. And it continued to be the strongest company we've ever seen. Some of its earnings reports during COVID are record-breaking and its IPO was record-breaking in terms of its growth. So why is that, right? Like, why is that? And the reason is that productivity is a micro trend that was happening before COVID and will continue to happen after COVID. So, um, It is all about how do teams uh, become more productive no matter where you're located. And um, we saw that recently with Asana. Asana had some decent earnings because productivity is a micro trend that is here to stay. Um, We like the category leaders and we will break up SaaS into lots of different categories to where I'm not, I rarely think of it as SaaS actually just because I have to go into what is the category? Who are, What is the market it's serving? Um, so I hope that makes sense uh, to where some micro trends within SaaS are uh, fading, if you will. And others yeah. are r- yeah. ready to surge for the next few years. And identifying what the trend is is probably the most important piece than finding the category leader or someone who's just pivoted their products where they can capture more market share. That piece is really important. Almost every single successful tech company, including Fang, had an important critical pivot. Amazon with cloud IaaS. Google uh, moved into mobile. Uh, Facebook technically uh, launched audience network. That was their product pivot. Um, So product pivots are extremely important to track. Um, So I'll, I'll look for that. If you're not a category leader, I'll look for you doing a 180 that is going to blow open more market share.
1: And are you looking for companies um, that are already making a lot of revenue that have a lot, you know, they're riding a the trend, let's say NVIDIA is it a good example of that. Um, and, you know, potentially going to, because they're the leaders, you could say, argue in that category, they're going to do very well with riding these other trends that are behind them at the moment. Or are you looking for, and maybe you're looking at both, but, or are you looking at the earlier stage companies that, you know, revenues aren't really there yet. It's, it's harder to, to sort of judge them on that level, but that's where your sort of um, expertise comes in. Cause you're on the ground, you know, and can see the value that these new technologies are giving people.
0: That's an excellent question because a lot of people will go all in on one or the other. Um, and that's probably the biggest mistake you can make. We are very big proponents of a well-balanced tech portfolio. We, we, we think both are important because one will hold you up in the bad times and one will, um, be thrilling in the good times. So you need a little bit of both. So what we do is we create a core, uh, you know, positions that are going to be with us for five or more years that allows us with the other positions in the portfolio to take some bigger chances to, you know, to swing hard at the fences. Um, but I would not be swinging hard at the fences every single ball pitched, you know, you want to get some people like, I mean, this analogy, you want to get some um, people yeah. on, on base, you know, and then you want to swing for the fences. And that's um, how we look at it is, it's a lot like baseball, those doubles, triples are super important. And so is those home runs. Um, but it, it just makes it easier to find home runs when you're sleeping soundly from your core positions. And I sleep very soundly on our core positions. I have no doubt that they will be um, industry leading companies in five years. I mean, that's where um, I feel like the differences if you've been in the industry is just and you're you've been trained is yeah. I am not guessing. And that's why I can be so vocal. I will go out and say, you know, you guys are wrong, this company is awesome and this is why, or you guys are totally getting that story wrong is because I'm not guessing at the point that I start to talk about something like I've really done a ton of research, I'm drawing on a lot of experience and a lot of connections in the tech industry who are building the technology they're not famous, they're not on stage, but they're busy building you know and so I can tap them anytime
1: and um given where we are today where where do you think the market's going over the next six months or so? It's quite an interesting time obviously because Inflation expectations and how the Fed's acting, and you know, a lot of people are unsure where we're going. I think in the next six months, I don't know if you've got an opinion on it.
0: Yeah, I do. Um, actually, if if you check out our free blogs, um, the portfolio manager just wrote an excellent article. He's going to start writing them once a month on his view of the market. He has been somewhat contrarian since April uh, when this tech sell sell off happened, and. He, in the internals and the vitals, if you will, that he's checking on the market. Um, he does, he believes the higher probabilities this market is going higher. Uh, and that was even when tech was going through some massive sell-offs. It's doing better by a long shot when he first came out with that. Um, but he is very, he's very good at what he does. He's actually kind of a secret weapon where a lot of people come into the premium site because they see my research. But once they're there, they, they stay because- yeah he holds their hand and he's basically yeah. saying like, not only am I believing there's a bull market, I'm putting my money on the line that there's a bull market. And if that changes, I will put my money on the line to make sure that we're protected. So it's just a different flavor than pounding on Apple over and over and over again, like you might see on CNBC. Yeah, yeah. And we're not saying arrogantly, like there's just a bull market and I'll tell you why we're saying like, we cautiously believe this is a bull market, and we have positioned ourselves accordingly. If we change that, we will let you know. Um, and we are trying to be competitive with the best funds on Wall Street. So we take it really seriously, and we are really very um, concerned uh, for our subscribers always. like we do not care about like being wrong. if if this thing turns into a bear market, we would be the first to say we're wrong to protect everyone involved. So, but right now, uh, you should check out that article because he goes through the fact that he was watching the Dow Transportation Index, why that was important that it participates. Um, and he goes through a lot of broad market signals. So he could he says it better than I do on that.
1: Now, Beth, if you've got time, um, there's something called a quick quick fire round that I've got. It's just five questions. Sure. Not, I'm going to take, you know, it's just whatever your, your first sort of um, ever comes to your head, basically. It's not going to looking for, for long answers, uh, but I'll crack on with that if that's all right.
0: Go for it. Let's do it.
1: Um, favorite pick for the year is a stock.
0: So I'm going to go with one of those swinging for the fences uh, and I'm going to say Fubo. And I think the market has Fubo totally wrong. So I I actually worked in user acquisition for a little bit. I know what the uh, best position you can have is for user acquisition and Fubo has it, which means because they already own the content audience, the audience is already watching live sports with Fubo. They are above and beyond easier to convert to sports betting than your general, um, you know, user acquisition um, that like DraftKings is doing. So because of the mechanics of user acquisition, Fubo's potential is not being priced in at all. And it is sitting in a really good spot right now. Uh, and again, it's because they own the live sports audience. That's rare and going to be very likely high probability that they're going to be a different company this time next year.
1: Awesome. Um, Name an investing hero.
0: I think Kathy Wood is a hero of mine. I think what she's done for women in finance is absolutely amazing. She's probably one of the most influential women that I've basically had, you know, the privilege of reading about and watching in my lifetime. Um, You know, not only is she over the age of 40, which is when all women disappear from media, but she's incredibly smart. She's made some very big calls that, you know, um, the world gave her a hard time on, and she stuck firm. I would absolutely say Kathy Wood is a hero of mine, and I actually really think Lisa Su of AMD is the best example of how the media does not portray women very well. Um, she is the best CEO in tech that we have seen over the last couple of years. What she has done to, against Intel competitively is like unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, she has taken share from the 800 pound gorilla and I think she's going to continue to do so. Um, And she's not uh, talked about nearly as much as like Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos. And that's a big mistake.
1: Favorite book. And it doesn't have to be an investing book.
0: So the book that has affected me the most this year is Good to Great. I am building a company and it's kind of a Bible for how to become a better... Uh, boss how to become a better founder and there were a couple things in it that the minute I read it I closed the book and put it into action and it's already made a big difference for my company so as far as like actual impact this year it's called it's called good to great awesome
1: an important lesson the market has taught you
0: um, be proud of your wins um, I think that a lot of people try to tell you to be humble I would say you know if you worked if you have some blood split and tears in something if you were there early for the practice sessions if you will stayed late and you happen to run a touchdown into the end zone, I think you could do a little bit of a dance and then get back to the game. Um, So I see, uh, you know, people like Kathy would do that, right? Like she is very proud of her test of the call and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think that it's really important to pay attention to the people who got stories right and stick very close to them. Um, And I would avoid people uh, who get stories wrong very frequently And look for who has original research. Um, That's an area where we are pretty sensitive because we'll publish on something and six months later, someone else will have the exact same message. Nobody's going to be able to stop that from happening. But if you can find the original source, that goose is going to keep laying golden eggs. And ARC is one that lays golden eggs. Um, I think we lay golden eggs. I think there's a few others that do too. Um, And I watch them very closely, especially in the startup world, the emerging tech space. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I think a lot of people made a lot of mistakes uh, coming out of that big bull market last year. I think a lot of people lost a lot of money, and I think yeah. it was—if you lost a lot of money—it uh, was probably due to sort, the source of information more than uh, anything else. The broader market.
1: So, final question: an interesting or disruptive theme industry that you know about that people aren't really watching yet?
0: Disruptive theme. Is what yeah. Oh boy. All of them are kind of disruptive. Uh, let's see. Hmm. What are we entering right now? Without going into any specifics, I'll say ARVR. I can't give it away what our positions are because they're behind yeah. a paywall, but I would say ARVR.
1: Well, Beth, that's been amazing. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, where can people find more information from iofund yourself, Twitter, et cetera,
0: Yeah, thanks. We have a free newsletter that goes out every week uh, and we put some very quality analysis in there. Uh, Some of our winners have come out of that free newsletter. And then if you are a more serious tech investor, we have a premium site, it's 65 a month. Not only do you get volumes and volumes of research from me, uh, I just put out one that was like 15 pages, 15 page PDF. Um, But you'll get Knox's real-time trade notifications, access to the portfolio, things like that. Um, but again if you're just want to kick back and see who we are we have a free newsletter and we um, put a lot of energy
1: into that so yeah i really recommend people check that out obviously the links and everything will be in the show notes so people can do that um is there anything else you'd like to leave with beth say to the audience
0: no i don't think so
1: i really appreciate the conversation today all right beth well have a good rest of the day and i hope to have the opportunity to catch up with you soon
0: thanks ed take care see ya. Bye.
2: thanks for listening everyone just a quick note before we sign off If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends, and in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.